investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 29 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Friday, August 30th. We're into the tail end of the dog days of summer. But nonetheless, there's a lot of really interesting market action that we want to keep you guys up to date on. This week off the top, Argentina flirts with default as it looks to restructure over $100 billion of debt. We're going to chat about what happened to the trading in its bonds and the bond price. A big tobacco deal, potentially, as Philip Morris and Altria confirm they are in merger talks. What's the catalyst behind this potential deal? Cycling equipment company and hot uh, Silicon Valley company Peloton reveals plans for an IPO. Should investors buy it? update on the trade war with China de-escalating as it indicates it won't retaliate on the most recent U.S. tariffs. What happens next? Lastly, we're going to chat about a recent blog post we put out. It's a discussion on the underperformance of small cap stocks. Big news in the sovereign bond space, as we've discussed ad nauseum over this podcast over the last number of months. We're having a big bond market rally uh, year to date, and you know, treasuries up well into the double digits, I believe north of 20%, but not all bonds globally are rallying, specifically in Argentina. Those bonds are getting crushed as the country looks to default and restructure over $100 billion in debt. So Argentina's government is asking creditors such as the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to push back debt payments and extend maturities on a total of $101 billion of debt. The country's finance minister is looking for financial relief as Argentina faces a worsening economy and a potential debt default prior to upcoming elections in October. So these measures that they are asking for, they would postpone payments on a total of over $100 billion of debt, including a large part of a previous $57 billion bailout package agreed to by the IMF just last year, which was the largest in its history. This attempt at debt restructuring comes amidst a really uh, crisis that was recently triggered just this month when President Mauricio Macri, he suffered an unexpectedly heavy defeat in a primary election that all but wiped out his chances of re-election in October. In addition, a recent auction of government debt failed to attract enough demand from investors, forcing the government to take action. Basically, Argentina's economy right now is very fragile. Inflation is accelerating. I believe it's above 50%. Unemployment is rising. The economy is being throttled by very high interest rates. And we'll talk about the currency. The Argentine peso has lost a quarter of its value since the August 11th primary this unexpected political event, and investors are worried that prolonged political instability ahead of this upcoming presidential election in October could trigger the kind of market meltdown that you know we've seen over and over in Argentina. Specifically, they have devo- defaulted on their debt already eight times in their history, the most recently just five years ago in 2014, but certainly Argentina does have quite the history of debt defaults. As for its bonds, they've obviously plunged in value here in recent weeks amidst 
fears of a default. Uh, they're trading below 40, 40 cents on the dollar. I believe they're currently bid around 38 cents on the dollar. So bond investors definitely taking some pain there. And ironically, Argentina issued a hundred year bond uh, just in the last couple of years. And obviously the price of that has just been absolutely crushed. Uh, S&P, the bond rating agency, moved Argentine debt to the selective default category, which is obviously pretty bad. Analysts estimating that bonds are likely only to recoup about, you know, 40 cents on the dollar if Argentina defaults and goes through restructuring. What do you think of this potential Argentina default? Yeah, I guess the question isn't if the bonds will be written down. It's a question of how much. And so this is the point in time where creditors will kind of band together and negotiate how much of par they can recover. Um, what's known as distressed debt investing. And so a good example of how sovereign distressed debt investing works is the experience of Elliott Management, one of the last times that Argentina defaulted, which is in 2001. So at that point in time, the country tried to offer the creditors 30 cents on the dollar, which most accepted. Um, you had mentioned that the IMF is one of their creditors. They are someone who would be more agreeable to accepting an offer. Mm -hmm. Because they are not a financial investor. They're not looking to make money. They're more so giving them money to help the stability of the country. Absolutely. And in this case, Elliot did not accept this. Right. Um, and, so, and so a bit of background on Elliot. Now, Elliot is a massive hedge fund. They're in, you know, I think 30 to 40 billion. And they're definitely known as one of the most feared activist and distressed debt investors out there. Absolutely. Very well known for their activism and really sharp elbowed approach, not only to their negotiations with sovereign nations, but also companies where there's a lot of interesting stories that have gone on throughout the years with Elliot. But going back to these, this particular situation, although they won in multiple court cases, uh, they really had no ability to collect any of their um, any of the amount of money that they were owed. So Elliot. Yes. In this case. And so then in 20, 2012, so we're looking at 11 years later, they arranged for an Argentine naval vessel to be seized in Ghana. So they convinced the Ghana government to do their bidding and to which they were going to use to pay the $1.3 billion in awards that the courts had uh, had awarded to Elliot. Basically, Elliot trying to grab any Argentine assets that they could in order to recover some value. Basically looking to liquidate a naval vessel, which right. is pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, and this only further politicized the issue. Um, so in 2014, as they were still in, in the courts, the court did apport, er, appoint a mediator. Um, and then eventually in 2012, that mediator through negotiations with the Argentine government, awarded Elliot, among other holdout creditors, there were some other ones, uh, but Elliot itself got $2.4 billion. Now, based on their original investment, that's a 392% return, mm -hmm. which sounds great, although that's over 15 years. Right. And so their annualized return was only in the 15 or the 11% range. And when you factor in legal expenses and just overall firm resources used in this legal battle, as well as the publicity, like it was a public, public relations nightmare mm -hmm. for Elliot. 
uh, this really isn't an outstanding return. So I would be very interested to see if funds that have been doing sovereign distressed debt investing, such as Elliott, uh, Baupost, which is run by uh, Seth Klarman, whether they'll be involved in this potential restructuring. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see some aggressive hedge funds hold up in the uh, holders list of these soon-to-be-defaulted Argentine bonds. Big news in the M&A space with a big potential merger in the mix. Philip Morris International and Altria, two of the largest tobacco companies, they confirmed that they are in discussions for an all-stock $200 billion merger of equals. And by merger of equals, this is basically a no-premium all-stock deal. This deal would bring back the companies uh, together. They used to be part of the same company when Altria spun out Philip Morris back in 2008. So they, they separated 11 years ago. Now they're trying to get back together. The companies are considering this merger to help withstand the decline in demand for tobacco. And that's their main um, you know, strategic rationale behind the deal is that uh, the tobacco business has really gone downhill. You're seeing declining demand, especially internationally. Uh, demand certainly has been declining in North American developed markets for uh, you know a while already, but they were seeing international growth. But that is starting to tick down and turn negative. They're looking to alternatives such as cannabis, such as vaping, and other sorts of uh, you know electronic cigarettes. So combining Altria and PMI, Philip Morris, would create a global tobacco powerhouse with investments in e-cigarettes and cannabis. This, now, this deal has really long been speculated by the market. Uh, both companies have really been struggling, uh, just declining cigarette consumption. Uh, they've faced a pretty tremendous new competitor in Juul Labs, which makes uh, you know, vaping, uh, which are seen to be a healthier alternative to traditional tobacco-based nicotine. And Altria actually invested nearly $13 billion to take a large stake in Juul Labs just last year. So that's Altria's uh, strategy there. As for kind of merger consideration, as I said, all stock, they're weighing a 59 to 41% split in which uh, Philip Morris would own 59%, Altria owned 41%. So basically PMI worth nearly 120 billion, Altria almost a 90 billion. That's kind of looking at how the cards will be cut here. But uh, like I said, this deal is not definitive. They're still in discussions. Uh, they expect uh, if a deal is announced, it could come within weeks. Uh, but nonetheless, we're seeing a lot of skepticism in the market, which certainly increases risk that this deal does not happen. Got some quotes here from uh, the city analyst. He stated, so far, we haven't spoken to one PMI shareholder who supports it. We are unconvinced of the benefits of combining. A quote from the Stifle analyst, he stated, while U.S. litigation risk was sufficient to break these companies apart back in 2008, U.S. regulatory risk is on the same plane now, in our view. Certainly shareholders in the market not liking this, shareholders not impressed. PMI's shares lost nearly 8% on Tuesday when the story was confirmed, closing at uh, less than 72 bucks a share, while Altria's stock fell about 4% closing around 45 bucks. So, you know, a lot of negativity around this deal, a lot of skepticism and the strategic rationale doesn't really seem all that logical, but certainly notable at just the massive size of it, $200 million deal. I mean, you don't see those every day. What are your thoughts on it? 
Yeah, so one thing that you mentioned is that back in 2007, 2008, when they had originally done the spinoff, is that one of the things was the declining U.S. market while international growth was reasonably strong, and then the really litigious environment in the U.S. Um, with regards to all the lawsuits that were coming at, coming at them. One thing that has changed now is that the U, that the international market is actually slowing its growth as well so it's coming back closer to the US so that is one thing that has changed but i just wanted to highlight some of the reasons why they would want to uh, to combine and from from PMI's perspective from Philip's, Philip Morris International's perspective Altria with their 35% stake in Jewel as you had mentioned as well as they have the 10% stake in Anheuser-Busch and the 45% stake in Kronos, those are viewed as high growth verticals for, for Altria. Right, and specifically Kronos was their big cannabis investment. Yes, and in terms of the ideal on Philip Morse's side, like as well, they do have their own heated tobacco product, which contains tobacco vapor, basically just heats the tobacco. Um, so very similar to what Juul is offering that they're marketing. But from Altria's side, what they would view as positive is the international exposure that Philip's, Philip Morris has uh, to further market the Jewel. Um, so that could be interesting in any sort of combination here. But as you had mentioned, it really just confuses investors on the strategy. It really is that like the, the issues that were present at the time of the spinoff still here for the most part. So it does seem like a little bit of confusion from a strategic standpoint. As well, I would like to point out that although volumes are decreasing in the US, the cigarette companies do have a significant amount of pricing power where they have been able to offset some of the volume decrease with regular price increases um, just because this is an addictive product. So in that sense, like for better or worse, they do have a very captive audience. Mm -hmm. But thus far, investors not liking it. You're seeing about a $10 billion decline in value for both the companies around this story. So we'll see what happens, whether or not they get a definitive deal, but uh, should be an interesting one to watch. Interesting news in the IPO space with cycling equipment company Peloton revealing its plans for an initial public offering. So what they did is they filed their prospectus uh, for their much anticipated uh, initial public offering or IPO. Now the company Peloton, which is known for its $2,000 exercise bikes, yeah, you heard that right, two grand. They were actually last valued at 4.15 billion in the private markets last year when they raised over 500 million in venture capital funding. So that just happened a year ago, back in August 2018. So in addition to these exercise bikes, Peloton offers subscription cycling classes that can be streamed live or on demand into homes. They said that they have more than half a million connected fitness subscribers which is double the year prior. In its prospectus, it showed that it's burnt through a ton of cash, which is a recent trend we have seen in most IPOs. It's burning cash at the fastest clip since it was founded, with revenue doubling from the previous year to over 900 million. So revenue is almost a billion dollars, uh, but losses are climbing even faster. So they went up 4X to almost $200 million over the past year. Interesting quote from the Peloton co-founder and CEO. He pitched the company as so much more than a maker of fitness equipment. It is no secret that exercise makes us feel good. 
It's simple science. Exercising creates endorphins, and endorphins make us happy. On the most basic level, Peloton sells happiness. <laughs> what are your thoughts on this uh, interesting IPO, to say the least? Yeah, despite them uh, selling happiness, what, what they are selling is a luxury good packaged together with a subscription service. And so looking at a business like this, so in a subscription business, it's important to look at the unit economics of really what is the lifetime value of a, any new, an incremental new customer. So there's three main parts of this. So the first being customer acquisition cost. And so really what, what this is, is just sales and marketing. So what their sales and marketing is per new c customer over the last year is about about $1,200, which is very high. That That's on par with financial services, um, certain areas of financial services, which is known as a really high customer acquisition cost business. But you can reduce this because of the gross profit that they do get on the sale of the bike. So the positive thing with this $2,000 bike is that they actually realize 42, around 42% gross margins. So you can reduce the customer acquisition cost by about $840 to uh, $380 in, in that range, which is still a high customer acquisition cost, but a little bit more bearable with regards to what their uh, subscription price is. Right, and it's interesting on that gross margin, I believe that's similar to the level of an iPhone. Absolutely, which is, you know, pointing pointing to the fact that it is a pretty reasonable business model. Uh, then moving to the next point in the lifetime value equation is the monthly churn. And so this is where things get really interesting with the company is what they report is a 0.8% monthly churn. And by churn, you mean, you know, how many subscribers are leaving and not paying the money anymore? Yes, yes. And so with a 0.8, their reported uh, churn rate, it averages to an average customer lifetime of 10.4 years. And so the important thing to remember is that the, the LTV formula for an additional customer, the unit economics, is really sensitive to the churn metric. So if you increase this just to 1%, the average customer lifetime is 8.3 years, down from 10.4. And if you further increase that to 1.5%, that reduces it down to 5.6 years. So you can see how this becomes really important what these churn metrics are. Sure. But the fact is, is that their churn metric has actually been artificially low for the last couple of years as they've aggressively marketed their bikes. So what they've done is offer them for $0 upfront on a payment plan over 39 months. But the thing is, is that these subscriptions are rolling off in the next couple of years. So we really don't understand how that, how these new cohorts or those, those original contracts that were signed, if those customers are actually going to continue subscribing. Right. Or even the original customers, those perhaps would be the most keen on the product and the service. Are the new subscribers as likely to have the same sort of you know, lifetime value to them. Absolutely. And what would really make this a lot easier, which some other subscription business model companies do, is really split, they really show the cohort analysis, which Peloton really doesn't do, which just makes this churn metric a little bit harder to justify. So if you do take their reported value 
Um, and then moving on from there, you have your gross revenue, gross profit per user. So it's a $39 subscription. Uh, their gross margins on that are about 42% as well. And why it is so low, you would think that this would be a higher margin on the subscription side, but it really comes down to the music licensing is they do have to pay a significant amount of money to license the music. And music is a really important part of the Peloton experience. I believe music is mentioned 174 times in mm -hmm. the S1. Mm -hmm. So it is a very important part of the business model. So any, any of you can do your own LTV calculations on your own um, with an appropriate discount rate. Typically, it's in the 10% range. But when, when I go through the, the math here, it does look like if you use their, their reported monthly churn, you do get a positive value for a customer. And so that's great. That's great in and of itself. But what becomes really important is what is the total addressable market? Now, you had mentioned iPhones with Apple. Well, pretty much everybody in North America, at least, needs a cell phone mm -hmm. or wants a cell phone. Right. Not every person in North America is interested in a Peloton in a very expensive luxury uh, good like a Peloton bike. Sure. So I haven't done any, any uh, strong analysis into what their addressable market is, but that would be very integral in deciding on whether this is actually worth a, a valuation of five, seven billion dollars. Right, right. And I think if we were to boil this down to like a real simple way of thinking about this. Now, you mentioned their historical metrics, which look pretty attractive. And I believe that, you know, the stock could work if they continue on that path of steady, profitable unit economic growth. But my main concern is that of business model risk. We see history littered with failed or faddish fitness trends. And so my main concern here is Peloton, Netflix or Bowflex. Obviously, Netflix has uh, low churn. They have, you know, a huge addressable market where customers uh, continue to pay the monthly fees and they have pricing power. They raise prices and customers continue to pay and they grow their subscribers and they have been for, uh, you know, over a decade. But then Bowflex was kind of like a flash in the pan. It was hot for a while and then declined. Now you're seeing a bunch of dusty old Bowflex equipment sitting in basements and, and for sale at garage sales. So that's kind of a major concern here, which kind of gives me pause. The other thing is, you know, the competitive angle to it. I know Peloton competitor SoulCycle, they actually tried to go public uh, in May 2018, but they backed off due to lack of demand, uh, blaming market conditions. But, you know, that could temper some d demand behind this IPO. In addition to that, earlier this month, SoulCycle actually announced uh, an exact competitor to Peloton. So, you know, some seem to think that perhaps that this business model, maybe they may e be able to replicate it. But nonetheless, you know, I think there is fad risk here. I think that stock market is littered with failed fitness concepts that, you know, come out with massive growth numbers and then are proven to be a fad, trail off and then crash and burn uh, the stock prices. So I certainly think uh, investors should keep that in mind. And, and in my opinion, I put this one in the too hard pile. It's, it's kind of hard to judge uh, whether or not it is a fad and at, at what point that will change. Absolutely. And just to address the main point of whether it's a fad is that currently 
they actually do have a very engaged user base. Now that is currently, the company has only been around for about four years developing, like with their selling their actual product. So I don't know if that's long enough to be a very strong sample size, but in terms of their customers, now 92% of their customers who have purchased equipment are still subscribers by the end of their fiscal year 2019, which was the end of June, which is a pretty impressive number on its own when looking at the churn metrics. But you do have to consider that people were buying these with zero money down. And with that, you were given the subscription. And so once those roll off, it will be really interesting to look at how those customer engagement numbers move are looking moving forward. The other interesting aspect is that they have added a little bit of gamification to their business model because you can just buy a subscription without the bike, but in that you aren't allowed to go for the leaderboard on uh, on their daily on your cycle, um, other things like that. That they have added a level of gamification used in the gambling industry, as well as I think that there is a psychological effect of having skin in the game when once you do make the decision to put $2,000 down on a bike, that you're unlikely to cancel your $39 a month membership just because you already view that you have this $2,000 investment that you don't want to see that to, you don't want to admit to yourself that that $2,000 investment was a bad, was a bad decision. Yeah. So how do you play it? Buy, short, or on the sidelines? As, as of right now, I'm on the sidelines just in terms of I really don't have a strong grasp of the both the churn and the customer acquisition cost moving forward because, as I mentioned before, the lifetime value of the customer is very, very sensitive to the churn rate and as well just they're, they're marketing a ton. They would have to bring that down on a per user basis for me to be comfortable with it. Wanted to touch on a quick update on the ongoing US-China trade war. Now, China's Ministry of Commer Commerce this week, they offered conciliatory remarks, hoping that the US can cancel the planned additional tariffs to avoid further escalating the ongoing trade war. Now, China indicated that although it had ample countermeasures to retaliate to these most recent uh, tariff increases by the US, they indicated that they thought discussions should focus on whether previously implemented tariffs can be canceled. China's hit back against each previous tariff increase by the US. It's been a tit for tat battle up until this week. So not responding in kind this time may finally signal a change in their strategy. And we certainly saw a bit of a market rally based off this news. Ministry of Commerce spokesman Gao Fang, he stated escalation of the trade war won't benefit China, nor the US, nor the world. The most important thing is to create the necessary conditions for continuing negotiations. The other really interesting aspect of what's, what China has done uh, recently with respect to its currency, now its currency has dropped 3.7% and China controls its currency, the value of its currency pretty tightly. So China allowed its currency to drop 3.7% in August which makes it the largest currency decline uh, in more than 25 years. Analysts are expecting further weakness in the months ahead as policy seekers in China seek to make exports, Chinese exports, more competitive as, you know, to partly blunt uh, the effects of U.S. tariffs. Economists see uh, that 10% uh, fall uh, of the yuan against the dollar 
would boost Chinese economic growth by about 0.2%. This helps to offset a cumulative drag of almost 1% from the planned and existing U.S. tariffs. So like we talked about before, um, you know, what China is doing in devaluing their currency is really to try to, you know, stem some of the effects of this ongoing trade war. What are your thoughts on the recent news? I mean, we saw some interesting market action the day that this news came out. The S&P rallied 1.3%, so certainly investors liking it. Absolutely. And in terms of the negotiations, they will, I believe they will begin on Sunday, so it'll be really interesting to follow those. But I guess just a question of, do you think that this is China admitting that the U.S. had more leverage um, over them than they were letting on to begin with? Or is it just simply irrational, a move that is rational, that isn't necessarily a sign of weakness? Yeah, perhaps they m met the end of their ability to, you know, inflict further economic damage onto the U.S. You know, China imports a lot less from the U.S. than the U.S. does from China. And therefore, you know, naturally, uh, the U.S. has significantly more power in that trade relationship. And I think China just kind of can't do much else, right? And we're seeing perhaps that uh, the Chinese economic growth numbers and, you know, the, the negative currency effects are really starting to affect them. I mean, they would never admit that, but that's certainly a decent thesis to carry. And I think that uh, they could be taking that into account in their most recent action of not uh, escalating the trade war, not doing that tit-for-tat action as we have seen up until this point, and ultimately, you know, seeking more talks. Absolutely. And what I'm looking at is kind of the signaling effect of that and what that could potentially mean for their GDP numbers that are coming up um, to see what sort of effect. Maybe, maybe there's very poor GDP numbers coming up. Um, you really don't know, but I guess there is speculation abound. We put out a blog post this week entitled, Does Size Still Matter? A Fresh Look at the Size Premium. Now, what the size premium refers to is the notion that historically small cap stocks or those stocks with the smallest market capitalization tend to outperform large cap stocks on average. There had been a popular study released about 30 years ago that indicated, um, you know, it studied the performance of stocks between 1926 and 1975 and determined that uh, being long a portfolio of the smallest stocks while being short a portfolio of the largest stock generated a return of nearly 20% annualized, which is pretty exceptional. And so we ran you know, a similar study on Canadian and US stocks for the 20 years from 1999 to present. Uh, we segmented uh, stocks based on their market cap decile. And this portfolio is rebalanced on a monthly basis. So what we determined uh, on Canadian stocks is that over the past 20 years, the smallest Canadian stocks returned 8.9% uh, annually, while the largest Canadian stocks compounded at a slightly lower 8.3% annually. In this 20-year simulation, there was no discernible evidence that supports the notion that smaller stocks outperform larger ones. If we put some money into this simulation, after 20 years, $100,000 invested in the small stock portfolio turned into about $550,000, while the large stock portfolio turned into about $490,000. But what's notable about the 20-year simulation is that 
you know, although small stocks did outperform significantly between 1999 and 2011, since then, over the past eight years, they have materially underperformed large cap stocks. The portfolio of small cap stocks is actually down 15% since 2011. So uh, eight years and negative double digit performance while the portfolio of large cap stocks over this time period gained almost 50%. So significantly adverse relative performance between small cap stocks and uh, large cap Canadian stocks over the past eight years. Now, if we look into the US, the evidence of the size premium, it's even worse. Since 1999, the deaths of smallest stocks actually underperform large stocks. The small portfolio compounded at 7.3% annualized, while the large stock portfolio notched a slightly higher 7.4% annualized return. Again, in the US, really no discernible evidence that smaller stocks have outperformed large stocks over the past two decades. Looking at the, the simulation of these two portfolios, we're seeing similarly interesting dynamics that we saw in Canada, that is a material recent underperformance of small cap stocks. So U.S. small cap stocks are actually in a bear market. They're down 25% over the past year. Not to mention that they have had a negative return over the past five years. And this is amidst basically a large cap rally. Uh, large cap stocks have only been going up since then. And they're really, you know, within a couple percent of their all-time high. Basically, our study shows that you know, if there is a small cap effect or if there was, there really isn't much evidence that there is anymore. So take that into account with your allocating to uh, different strategies exclusively based on size. What we're saying is perhaps that is not uh, a robust investment strategy to allocate capital. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 29 of the Absolute Return Podcast. As always, you can check out more episodes at absolutereturnpodcast.com. If you like it, uh, leave us a review um, and we'll chat with you next week. Have a good one. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.